Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. Later, Amber Philpott will join us with some of her interview with Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman on a recent and very personal decision. That's coming up later. But if you ask any Kentuckian where they're from, most will name a county. We have 120 counties. That puts us in the top. Only some other states like Texas and Georgia have more. And our counties face unique challenges. That's the case whether they're dealing with the pressure for urban-like services and the larger ones or the smaller ones that sometimes have challenges just paying the bills and meeting state requirements. Joining us today from the Kentucky Association of Counties is the Executive Director and CEO Jim Henderson, who by the way is a former judge executive himself, so you you know this game well. Just a little bit. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Uh, first to this uh, unique sense of place that Kentuckians have, because it is true that uh, it's something that uh, binds us and distinguishes us, because it is often a point of pride. If you ask somebody where they're from, they're going to tell you the county. That's true, and you know, I think uh, not as much now, I think they've changed the license plates uh, where you can not put your county name on there, but, but we were one of the few states that actually had the county name on your license plate. I think that kind of speaks to the Kentucky culture that people identify by their county name. A lot of our schools, obviously, and those, those, those things that we identify with are county-centric, so yeah, you're exactly right. We have 120 of them. Uh, is it blasphemous within your organization to talk about at some point uh, doing some mergers and having fewer counties? You know, it's really not. In fact, some of our county officials talk about it. Um, it's hard to think about how we would ever get there because, uh, I mean, conceptually, I think even county judges and fiscal courts that would talk to each other as neighbors sometimes talk about that economies of scale, but it, it's, a, it's a big uh, lift. There haven't been a lot of mergers of counties or cities and counties in, in our nation's history, so it's a heavy lift, but I think people understand that there are some valid arguments for that, um, even among the county ranks, people talk about it. Is there a, a number that often seems right to people, you know, that there should be maybe... 50 counties or you know or I mean it's all across the state it's very different I mean I think when you've seen uh, one county you've seen one county that's kind of our NACO National Association of Counties talks about that I mean there are large states particularly out west that have very few numbers of counties uh, so you know it's it depends on really what people have gotten used to um, you know it's not uncommon to live in a state where your county uh, may be 50 miles across uh, in Kentucky, there aren't that many counties that, that are that large, like Georgia. Georgia's a, a very heavy populous countied state for a state that's not much bigger than us in, in, uh, in geography. So yeah. it, it, it's hard to know what that number would be, that magic number. Well, I'm not sure there is such a thing. The history in Kentucky was to make it to within a, a, a day's uh, horseback ride to the courthouse, right? The county seat, yeah. 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 And and that, you can do that about every county now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another area that we're 50 years into the judicial changes in yes. 1974, and yet we still call what in other states would be called a county executive or a county mayor, a judge. Yes. And that confuses a lot of people. I, I've talked to young folks who say, you know, that you understand the judge does not have judicial uh, power, and they don't uh, oftentimes. No, it was, it was. When I was judge, it was very confusing when we were dealing with uh, economic development uh, projects, people that came in not only from other states but from other countries that were looking at locating an industry and they would be puzzled. Is Why is a judge sitting in the t at the table talking to us about that? Uh, it's just a, it, you know, it has a rich history in our state. Uh, I was actually in D.C. recently with other state association executives and presidents and I was with our Tennessee 
uh, counterpart, and they do. They call it a county mayor. And that was a, a, a fairly recent change. They used to actually use that term county judge, and they changed it because of the confusion that sometimes occurred when they were dealing with people from out of the state about the role. So, uh, you know, we do a pretty good job of explaining why it's still called county judge and explain it's more like an executive county executive position, but there are some other states that actually still call the chief executive position mm -hmm. a county judge. Arkansas, Texas, uh, Florida is not as much as it used to be, so it's not completely unusual to have that term in other states, but we're pretty unique in it. But there's not been a lot of talk of changing it. No, not in a long time. <laughs> okay, okay uh, let's uh, get to some tougher questions sure. now. <laughs> the mantra, especially among uh, conservatives, uh, used to be that the best decisions are made at the local level. In recent years, Frankfurt has been much more likely, though, to, to, to write rules and, and, and put those down to the, to the local governments and, and place mandates on them, uh, often without sending the money to, uh, to help uh, to, to make it happen. Uh, do you have concerns about the balance between local and state government? I do, and our members do, and uh, and I personally identify as a political conservative, and uh, always have believed that the best decisions are made at the local level. That that the best government is the government closest to the people, and that's that's us at the county level. And uh, it is concerning to see so much, and this is a national trend. It, it's something we talk about when we gather with other. Uh, counterparts from across the country in, in county government that these uh, preemption bills, they, that's kind of the term that's used in the uh, legislative vernacular where, where people reach down and try to uh, tell local government what they can and can't do. It, it is it is uh, something that is troubling and we talk about it a lot among our membership. I mean would you call it a, a power struggle between Frankfurt and the and the local government? Well we're such, we're, we're, counties are a political subdivision of the state so right. we're much more uh, naturally connected to state government. I think for us you know the partnership between counties and, and the state is, is so important that Obviously, we don't necessarily want to view it that way. We just want to understand how do we how do we match that up because we're heavily dependent upon the state budget. A lot of the county responsibilities are constitutionally and statutorily uh, prescribed by by the state, and so it, we do a lot of things that are an extension of state government. So, but but still, I think we prefer to have a lot more decision making at the county level uh, on, the, on the issues that are important to the local uh, folks. Why would lawmakers think that the decision is best made in Frankfurt when it, it may be a matter that can be decided at the local level? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I think it might differ from legislator to legislator. I mean, sometimes you have, I'm sure, experiences where you've seen, um, as a legislator, you may personally disagree with a decision that your county judge and fiscal court or your mayor and city council made, and 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 you hear that feedback. Uh, it's the same constituency, you know. The same folks who vote for the mayor uh, also are having a vote for the county judge, and they're also getting to vote for their state representative and their state senator. And sometimes the the electorate doesn't really know the difference between who is ultimately responsible. Um, you know, I know legislators tell me they get questions about things that they from the citizens that are really federal issues, right? And they think, well, you're a, you're a senator, so that's, that's your, you know, sometimes people don't understand, and they think the same of the county judge or the fiscal court, that you're deciding about uh, issues that are of state uh, matters. So it, it's, a, it's a constant education on the part of those of us in government about how it all works, even, with, with the electorate. 
What would you say is the highest priority for counties right now in this current legislative session that is underway? There are lots of discussions about a lot of bills. The most important bill, of course, is the state budget that will be enacted, the spending plan for the next two years. There are some matching funds mm -hmm. for counties uh, as part of that process. What's the, what are the high priorities for you? Well, the budget is absolutely the highest priority for us because, as I said, we're so dependent upon that interrelationship with state government. So it's just full of different pieces that affect everything we do at the county level. Uh, obviously, it's a perennial issue for us, but county jails uh, continue to be a real issue. Uh, just, just trying to figure out how to fund that uh, responsibility at the local level when it's, you know, the, there's so much that's outside of our control, but we're responsible for operating the county jail, uh, and, and many counties also house state inmates, so it's a, it's a, a very interrelated uh, issue for us. Annexation has been an issue for us. We raised that issue last session. It's not a new issue, but it got some attention last issue. We continue to talk about that in this session and looking for maybe some resolution on that. So uh, some some, yep. some big topics. There. Let me ask yeah. you about that. Sure. There, there's been some friction in recent years as cities grow or want to grow uh, and expand their boundaries and the impact uh, can be on counties in terms of the revenue, right. the revenue share situation. So I, I take it that is the, the main uh, grievance when it comes to cities wanting to annex into counties, right? It really is. I mean, in most of our counties, the county judge and the mayor and the city council and the fiscal court are, are great partners and are working together on many issues. Unfortunately, the laws that exist that, that are applied uh, primarily in about 30 counties, the way that the population thresholds are established, just creates natural tension because when a city grows and expands its boundaries, it costs the county not only revenue they now collect, but the potential for future uh, revenue. And it's mostly in the growth counties, so there's a lot at stake. And so it, it creates tension. You know, county governments, uh, county officials are not against their cities growing. When the cities are growing, the counties are growing too. We, we just want it to benefit both the county and city government as that as that happens. How much pressure <laughs> is there on counties to provide urban-like services? You know, they, they will see in the city that uh, folks can get a very quick response from a police department or a fire department. They will see uh, the, the utilities that are available mm -hmm. to them. They'll see regulations uh, that are that are put in place that uh, make some rules in their neighborhoods. Right. Uh, how much ongoing pressure is there for the counties to do more of those things? It's real and, and I think most county officials want to be able to respond to that when people in the more rural areas ask for things that are much more like an urban service. You know we're such a different creature though from a city government. Uh, as I said we have so many statutory responsibilities that are unique and uh, county-wide that most counties really, especially if you get into a smaller county, really can't offer as much of those things as they might even want to to rural residents. And so, again, that makes sense for people to want to be closer to the city if they want those services. We're not opposed to that, right? We just want to make sure that the revenue is not uh, lost when that happens. But they'll go out and build a, a very expensive home five miles out of the city limits and and then uh, sometimes not understand when the response to a, a fire on their property or whatever is not what it would be in a city. Exactly. And I, I faced that when I was county judge. And you know, as, as a state, we're seeing uh, incredible growth in our population, particularly along 
the more growth areas along the interstate corridors. And so we're seeing not just growth from within the state, but a lot of people coming into our state from out of state. And they're escaping a lot of things that they don't like in other states to come to a more rural state where it's maybe a little more relaxed and maybe uh, less like they knew, but yet they do want some of those things that we don't often have outside of the urban corridor. So it's a tr it is a struggle. And uh, you know, six out of ten Kentuckians live in a city, but everybody lives in a county, yeah, right? So how challenging is it for uh, county officials to appeal to residents in the city again, who may see that they get their services from their city governments, and so they it doesn't matter maybe as much to them. Uh, what is going on in, outside the city limits? Well, it's an ongoing struggle that we have to tell the county story. Uh, I think very few people, including myself, before you get into the county government, truly understand what our roles and responsibilities are. Uh, elections, for example, you know, those are things we take for granted that we're going to be able to participate in, but those are for everyone, right? And so the responsibility of providing a safe and secure election process rests with the county clerk. That's for everybody. Uh, the, the fact that we want to have a place where people can be locked up when they do something wrong, that, that's a benefit to all the citizens of the county. Uh, the sheriff providing security to the judicial judges and in the court system and serving papers and uh, all the work that goes on in the civil service, those are benefits that benefit everybody. But I don't think the citizens readily are able to see those things necessarily as a function of county government that they know. So we have to keep telling the county story so that people do understand that because it's, it's again, it's an area that unless you need something that county government provides or that you don't even know that it's them that's providing it, you may not even recognize that that is what you're getting uh, when you're paying for county services. Very often uh, libraries, uh, more and more county parks uh, yeah. being developed, we're seeing that kind of thing. Public health, uh, cooperative extension, all of those are outreaches of county government. The drug problem has been such a challenge for Kentucky and counties have uh, had to wrestle with it on several levels with law enforcement, with the uh, coroner's offices, mm -hmm. frankly, mm -hmm. having to deal with these overdoses. Well, some of the settlement money that is being parceled out to local governments uh, be helpful in that regard. Yes, uh, and the opioid settlement funds are going to be uh, very important to local governments. It's being uh, dispersed to both cities and counties through a federal court order. This is a, these, are, these are not taxpayer dollars. These are court-ordered funds from these uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, these manufacturers and distributors that were part of the problem that created this, this uh, scourge of the opioid uh, problem. So we actually brought somebody on board at CACO who's going to be uh, working directly with counties. Uh, working in partnership with our National Association of Counties, and that's their full-time job, is to really assist counties on best practices. What can you do to make these dollars uh, go as far as they possibly can to not only help those who are now caught up in this system, but to help avoid that becoming a problem in the future. So it's a, it's a long window, about 15 to 18 years, uh, about 15 years left of about, of about an 18-year window of those funds. So counties have got to be very thoughtful about and it's not a lot of money in any one year. So you look at the long game. How can we best use those resources? I think some of our counties are going to look at regional things, doing, doing things with their neighboring counties because that's going to be the best way to do it. These funds are distributed in a different way than we're used to. They're not based on population or, or county size. They're based on where the data has shown the problem was. So some of our smaller counties are getting some of the largest amounts of money. Some of the large counties 
aren't getting as much mm -hmm. because it's been a, a real scourge in rural Kentucky, yeah. particularly in the east. Well, and some were uh, uh, incentivized to, to uh, come up with programs and, and, and those are what got the awards in some cases. In some cases. You know, uh, you know workforce is such mm -hmm. an issue uh, in the state. What, what do your local officials tell you about how that impacts them, both in trying to uh, maybe locate businesses within their counties or uh, their own uh, workforces? It's a double-edged sword, as you just described. Not only are they struggling to find the workforce to fill the job needs in their county that private business and industry has, but with this wageflation that we've seen over the last two or three years, uh, which is great for workers, I mean, if the price, the uh, uh, wage that's being paid is going up, that's good. The pressure on county government, though, is tremendous because, again, very limited uh, resources in some of our counties, and so to compete uh, just with a person who can go to work at a fast food restaurant or a or a uh, an entry level position. Uh, is sometimes more than they could pay to hire somebody to work as a deputy jailer or a deputy sheriff. So it's a real struggle for our counties to keep up with, again, not the ability to go straight to the market price for wages uh, that, the, that the private sector can raise the price of goods, right? They can charge more uh, to pay for that. We can't do that. Animal control is a major issue for counties, right? And uh, I know in the, the, the rules have been for a long time that the county's responsible, and yet, uh, again, there's not a lot of funding for that that comes uh, at least down from the state. Exactly, and I'll tell you, it might be surprising, but anybody who served as county judge or a fiscal court member will know it is one of the most often calls you would get as a county official in most of our counties. Uh, and people are very, very uh, bothered by situations that involve stray animals, stray dogs, you know, the barking dogs. I mean, it, it, it can become, and, and vicious dogs. I mean, that becomes a real issue in a lot of our counties. And we are tasked in almost every county with that responsibility, very little funding associated with it. And sadly, a, a county judge could, could spend almost a full-time job just taking those calls in some of our counties. A few seconds left. What would you have people know about uh, their counties, their, their uh, abilities to serve them, and, and, and their goals, and how they can get more involved if they would like? Well, I appreciate that, that question. You know, what I found, and not only, not only when I serve, but now in this role, is that most county officials elected across the state are people who got into this line of work because they love their community, they believe in public service, and they put a lot on the line and sacrifice a lot to serve the people in their county. Uh, and that's rewarding for me to work for people like that. Uh, I do wish people would be more involved. I, I wish people would attend fiscal court meetings and, and, and get involved and understand what's happening. I think most of our county officials want an engaged and educated electorate that, that, that appreciates what they do at the county level. So we all have a responsibility to more, be more civically uh, engaged and it's certainly no different for the county. All right, Jim Henderson is the executive director and CEO at CACO. Thank you for Thank coming. You, we really do appreciate it. We're coming right back in just a moment. We'll hear more of Amber Philpott's interview with Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman. WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers is coming back.
Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Kentucky Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman recently made the very personal decision to undergo a preventative double mastectomy. It came after her doctors made a discovery at the height of the fall campaign when she and Governor Andy Beshear were running hard for re-election. This week, the Lieutenant Governor talked with our own Amber Philpot about her situation and her decision. And Amber is joining us right now. This was very personal for the, the Lieutenant Governor, obviously, but even more difficult, wasn't it, given that it happened at the, you know, in the spotlight of a campaign? I can't imagine. We know how busy they were in the fall campaigning. So she goes in, she has her first mammogram in September. They say they see something, they want to bring you back. And then she said really over September, October, and November, she had more questions than she had answers. Mm -hmm. But still in the gravity of all of that, of a bus tour, crisscrossing the state, all of the campaign stops. And, you know, I asked the Lieutenant Governor, how did you manage it all? And I think she said, you know, it really was a nice distraction, a welcome distraction. And she really credits the governor who stepped up and said, your health is more important. Go take care of yourself. If you have to miss something, you have to miss something. And she said she really credited because she knows that not all women right. get that. We want to show your story mm -hmm. and the, the interview with the lieutenant governor. We'll uh, discuss that a bit after that. In the fall of 2023, Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman had a lot on her plate. She was actively crisscrossing the state campaigning for another re-election bid with Governor Andy Bashir, which ended in a win. Then came inauguration where she gave a rousing speech. As I look around, I'm reminded that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. But under the surface, she was dealing with something very personal. I have a history in my family of, of breast cancer, and so it was a little, um, it was just kind of looming. You know, it was one of those things that I thought, um, I'm just kind of waiting to hear. In September, the 41-year-old went for her first mammogram. Some uh, issues were raised, which set the ball rolling for more um, intense and invasive screenings. Doctors found four lesions, meaning she would need four biopsies. Three were benign, but doctors say the fourth had the potential of becoming malignant. It was emotional and heartbreaking news for Coleman. So I was alone that day because you go to the doctor by yourself, right? Um, and so that was hard, but I have to say that the nurses and the doctors who do this all day every day right this could very well become like you know an assembly line for them they were so compassionate and they were so empathetic the wife and mom decided in that moment to be proactive opting against the four surgeries and wondering if cancer would ever be diagnosed and instead chose a double mastectomy i knew that i wanted to have a double mastectomy because i needed that relief um, I needed to not have to worry about this looming. I was going to have to do scans and screenings every six months for the rest of my life. Um, and I just didn't want to live like that. The lieutenant governor says from September to November, she had more questions than answers. The election, she admits, was a welcome distraction. I was able to you know, talk to the governor about it and kind of give him a heads up that I don't know what this is going to mean. Um, and I have to give credit to him because he said, you know, this bus tour, our political events, none of that is more important than your health. And you need to take care of that. And if you have to miss something, I've got it. Now back at work, the lieutenant governor has received countless cards and well wishes. And she's heard the stories of other Kentucky women. And it's why she chose to share her own journey. That was a lonely feeling in that office when I, I got the news that something was 
wrong enough that surgery was required, but I didn't quite know what it meant. Um, and I don't want other women to feel that way. Her story is deeply personal, but Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman hopes her experience encourages other women to get their screenings. We saw the tears in her eyes when asked so if she had thought about her, what if she had put um, hers off. But you know, there could have been real consequences if I had put this off. And you know, you get this news, you go home, and your you know, three-year-old three comes home from preschool. And you think, man, um, she needs me. Very personal is yes. right. You know, d does she believe that, that sharing her stories is one of the best ways that she can help other women? 100%. She yeah. has a great platform, right? And I ask her, does this make her want to now advocate and do other things in her role? And she said, certainly, um, she will always advocate for women getting the best care, also advocating for their own care, and then also talking about how lonely it can be for some people that they feel like they're the only one going through mm -hmm. this. And she said, I didn't know anybody who had gone through this. So if I could share my story and someone else connects and Bill in fact after the story aired I got an email from a woman who had gone through this mm -hmm. and was thankful and actually said how could I share my story to the lieutenant governor so I can tell people they're not alone. Every indication she's doing okay. Going to have one yeah. more surgery yeah. and uh, she's back at work looking forward to four years and, yeah. and whatever comes their way on the on the business they've started that she says they want to finish. I told you you could blame me for uh -huh. one question uh -huh. about her political future and you did ask that yeah. and she would really uh, only sort of hint uh, that she wants to remain in yeah. the public arena? You can tell. She yeah. still wants to serve whatever that capacity is going to be. There was a bit of a giggle in there um, uh, that I gave her a hard time about, but I think certainly she's got a, a future ahead if she wants it, and I think things like this, uh, seeing a woman in her role is so mm -hmm. important for other Kentucky women, especially when it comes to what she does, but also when it comes to health care for sure. It was a great interview and a great story, and we appreciate yeah. you, and it's on WKYT.com mm -hmm. if folks uh, want to see it. Stay with us. We'll be back with a look at what we have scheduled for next week's Kentucky Newsmakers in a moment. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. And before we go, a word about next week. Among our scheduled guests next week, Lexington Mayor Linda Gorton. She'll be delivering her State of the City address, giving an idea of how things are going in Lexington and Fayette County. And then longtime Lexington lawmaker Ruth Ann Palumbo, who is stepping down after more than a third of a century in the State House, will also be a guest. That is Kentucky Newsmakers for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you make it a good week ahead.